Well, it's good to see everybody this morning. It's an honor and a privilege to be preaching for you this morning. Uh, our text will be uh, Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through um, 18. Luke 10, chapter 13, verses 10 through 18. And the title of my sermon is Jesus is Lord. Amen. I hope we will see that clearly demonstrated through our text this morning. If you would, please stand with me as we read God's word. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water, to water it? And ought not this woman, the daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Say this together. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So the title of the sermon comes from a couple of places. One, as we'll see, it was Luke's aim to let his hearers know that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah and the Lord. It comes from verse 15, where Luke uses the title, and he says, Then the Lord answered him. But it also comes from our baptisms uh, that we celebrated two weeks ago. I already knew my text a couple of uh, weeks ago and had read this passage several times. And as those three ladies stood before us a couple of weeks ago and made their sacred confession that Jesus is Lord, it, it struck me. And I have spent the last couple of weeks, while not working on my sermon as much as I would like, certainly thinking about it an awful lot, and thinking about that sacred confession. It was a striking and profound moment. It always is. It's baptism. It's awesome. We love it. We want more. Right, Robbie? Amen. Robbie is always reminding us and pushing us to see more baptisms. 
So it was awesome to see these three ladies from three completely distinct backgrounds, three different stages of life, three different life experiences, all come together and stand and say with one voice their sacred confession that Jesus is Lord. And for all of us in this room who claim the title Christian, whether we verbally say it or we believe it, or we remind ourselves of it through song, etc., we too make that same proclamation, Jesus is Lord. And so my aim this morning is for all of us to, from this text, reflect on the power of those very words. As you know, oftentimes with words, we say them and we make our sacred confession because that's what we do at baptism. What do those words mean? What is the weight that they carry? Why do they matter? So I hope that you will reflect on that uh, as as we explore this passage together this morning. It's no surprise to any of you that we are living in perilous times. Perilous in so many ways. I actually wrote like three different versions of this part of the sermon because there are so many perilous things to write about. I landed on all of the things that are fighting for our time and for our attention. Those things that we place our trust in, those things that we give our time to, and especially those things where that comes together and our time and our trust come together and we place uh, our emphasis or we give our hearts to those things, we give our minds to those things, we give our hopes to those things, those things become our idols. Those things become our lords. And these are the habits and the ideas that occupy the thrones of our heart. And if we are not careful, they can quickly begin to rule us. Our sacred confession reminds us that this should not be the sacred confession reminds us that our lives and only one person are reminds us that this is sin in our lives and that only one person can occupy that throne that there can only be one king over us and that is the lord and what's more it's good to be reminded that there is only one who is worthy of that title and that is jesus so last week pastor aaron kicked us off as we get back into our Luke series, which we uh, titled Upside Down. And um, so as a way of reminder, because it's been a while, because we've spent uh, a lot of time in Genesis, I would like to um, remind us a few things about the Gospel of Luke. First of all, most of you know, but some of you may not that Luke is, in fact, the author of the Gospel of Luke. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was also a friend of Paul. Luke was a medical doctor, which makes passages like this morning especially interesting because I do think that Luke had a special interest in Jesus' healing ministries. Luke sought to record the life and works of Jesus in two letters. Some of you may not know that. He wrote 
the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, or as we usually call them, the books of Luke and Acts. I thought it was helpful in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, when Luke wrote this. And I hope that you will carry this with you, not only in this sermon, but as we continue in this series. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty of the things that you have been taught. I love that. He said, I've done the research I've talked to the people who were there. From the beginning to the end, I have verified everything. And I'll tell you something that we know about Luke. He was a well-educated, highly intelligent individual. He had an amazing grasp of the Greek language. So he was a guy who was capable of verifying these things. You can trust the work that he put into him. And then he says, and I have written them out so that you may know with certainty the things that you have been taught. Well, there are fewer things that we need to know with certainty than the absolute truth that Jesus is Lord. So Luke's not only attempting to capture a historical account, but he also brings with him a belief. He believed that Jesus was who he said that he was. He believed that Jesus did the things that he said and did do. And he believes that Jesus is going to do what he said. And Luke wants his readers to know that. And so the big theme, you might say, over the entire Gospel of Luke is he is attempting to clearly communicate that God is seeing through his redemptive plan for history, that he's going to do it, that he's had a plan all along and that this is the fulfillment of all that they knew about from the Old Testament. And what he's really communicating through that is that this Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one that they have been waiting for. In fact, it is interesting to note that Luke uses the term Lord more than any other author in the New Testament. He uses, calls Jesus Lord more in Luke than in any other book in the New Testament except for Acts. So Luke clearly wanted his readers to know that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord. And so as we turn to our text this morning, I want us to see three pictures of Jesus's lordship. There are at least three that come out in this story, and they are that Jesus is the Lord of his people, that Jesus is the Lord over all powers, and that Jesus is the Lord of promise, the Lord of his people, the Lord of all power, and the Lord of his promise. So these verses begin a new section in Luke. So if you were to look and you're reading um, as you should, sort of what comes before and what comes after, you'll see that it's kind of like just a new section. It even kind of starts that way. It's just an on the Sabbath day, he went into 
the synagogue. It's just this random Sabbath day, this random synagogue. He's not following on what Aaron preached to us last week. It's just a new section. This was, in fact, Jesus' custom. We know that from Luke chapter 4, verses 16, when he says, And on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, which was his custom. And there are many accounts throughout the Gospels of Jesus teaching in the synagogues, today's text just being one of them. This was likely towards the end of Jesus' ministry. It's the last record of him teaching in a synagogue, probably only a few months before his crucifixion. A couple of details about the synagogue you might be interested in, things that I even sort of forget or don't think about from time to time, but the synagogue is not the temple. It's a different place. Temple is where they did sacrifices, etc. Synagogue just means meeting place. Synagogue's like a, like a cultural center, in a sense. And so, yes, they had worship there, they had prayer there, but they also had school there. They had meetings and gatherings there. They held court there. There were probably some 250 synagogues in this area of Galilee. And Jesus went to very many of them. But primarily what you should know is that the synagogue is where the people were. And so it made sense for that to be the place that Jesus would go over and over. It put him before the worshipers and it put him before the leaders. And this brings us to our first point, which is Jesus is Lord of his people. There's two facets that I want us to see from this. First of all, verse 10 says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Isn't it true that we experience people with great power, people who have great power as being somehow different than us, somehow other than us, somehow separated from us. Like there's clearly a class system at work here. There's the people with a lot of power and there's everybody else. And in case you're confused about that, we're everybody else. (laughs) Amen. This has really been on display this week, has it not? through the queen's passing. I am intrigued, I admit, I'm not ashamed, by the royal family. Um, I have been known to read an article or two in People magazine about them. Don't don't tell a bunch of people. There's something about the fascination of just how different their lifestyle is. Like, I'm telling you, this week I have looked at so many pictures of the queen and the royal family and with just sort of this like curiosity, like I want to be a fly on the wall. Do y'all watch The Crown, right? Yeah, you do. I know you do. (laughs) Because, yes, you do. It's okay. I'm admitting in front of everybody that I read People magazine. (laughs) You can admit that you watch The Crown. Now, it's a good show, and it lets you inside this totally other lifestyle that they have. They are 
quite literally separated. And I'm not just talking about the royals, right? I'm talking about people of power, whether they're the elites in America, the politicians, whoever they are. And it has always been this way, that the people of power separate themselves from the rest of us. They are quite literally untouchable. And I mean literally. I read an article this week about uh, various visits that the presidents have had with the queen over the years. She was queen of like through like 10 presidents or something. And so there was this, all these stories of these different visits with presidents and the queen. And of course, they are all about various gaffes that our you know, presidents have made with all of the royal like rules and, and stuff, which I'm sure are, you know, hard to get your mind around. One of them was Michelle Obama, who was talking with the queen. They're standing in front of everybody and they're, they're talking about the shoes or something, literally. And the queen said something, apparently she was super funny. And she said something to uh, Miss Obama and they kind of connected. And so Miss Obama like puts her hand on her shoulder, right? I do that. Right? You don't do that to the queen, right? Like they're going to write about that in the future if you do that. She's literally untouchable. Another one was the time that Jimmy Carter kissed her. <laughs> Which that one is literally just embarrassing. Like, you know, maybe I didn't know I couldn't touch you on the shoulder, but I'm about certain that I can't kiss you. Not only that, he kissed her on the mouth. <laughs> True story. Yeah. So be embarrassed. Um, these are extreme examples, but they make the point. More so what it reminds us of that this is not the case with our Lord. And it is demonstrated in accounts like this. Jesus is a Lord who is present with his people. He's the kind of he's not the kind of king or ruler who rules from a distance. He's not in an ivory tower living in luxury in his castle. Throughout his ministry he is found teaching in the synagogues and walking along the roads, spending time with his people. Large crowds followed him everywhere that he went. They were touching him and pulling at his robes. I mentioned earlier that a key theme in Luke's Gospels was demonstrating, was, was Luke demonstrating that Jesus was in fact the long-awaited Messiah. One of the reasons that this was so difficult was because it, it didn't align with their sensibilities and expectations of what this powerful and who this powerful Messiah would be. who he interacted with and how he interacted with them was a challenge to their sensibilities and to their expectations. But it was not some sort of political angling on the part of Jesus. You know, oftentimes the powerful will come down and like shake our hands and show up at our event or whatever to gain our favor. This was not Jesus' purpose in being among his people. It reminds me of Philippians 2, 5 through 7, which speaks deeply to this issue of Jesus being among his people. It says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, speaking of power, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. Jesus Christ is not like any person of authority that the world has ever known. When you make your sacred confession that Jesus is Lord, you can know that you are submitting to a king who stands with you, who fights for you, who knows your situation inside and out. He wants what is best for you, and he's laying a path for you. Jesus is truly Lord of his people. So there's a second facet to this characteristic of Jesus' lordship that we see in this passage also. Verses 11 and 12 say, And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over. So not only do we see Jesus throughout his ministry teaching in the synagogues and walking along the roads, going from towns to villages where the people were, we see that our Lord has a special place for the vulnerable and for the outcasts. On this Sabbath day, there was a woman who had been crippled by a disabling spirit. The passage doesn't say why she came, only that she was there and that Jesus saw her. We see it time and again in his ministry. Even before his ministry began, we see Jesus linked to the outcast. Who is the herald of Jesus' coming ministry? This weird hermit guy dressed in animal skins that ate bugs and honey. This is the guy that announces Jesus is coming. And when he begins his ministry, who does he call but fishermen and revolutionaries and tax collectors? Some of them have had means. Others probably did not have much at all. Jesus wasn't about rich or poor. He certainly wasn't about status. He did not come seeking to gain favor with powerful people. Some other examples are Mary Magdalene. She was one of the women that traveled with Jesus. She helped him with the administration of his ministry. And she was a woman who he had freed from the possession of seven demons. There was the woman at the well, a Samaritan nonetheless with whom by status he should not have even spoken to. A woman with five previous marriages, now living with a man who was not her husband, but rather than keeping his distance, he engages in a conversation that would change her life and arguably convert her into the first evangelist of Christianity. The religious authorities were aghast. There was the woman caught in adultery, brought to Jesus by those same church leaders, desiring to see her stoned to death for her acts. Instead, Jesus stands with her. He challenges her accusers, bringing to light their own sin and thereby saving her life. But not only that, he forgives her. 
He charges her to repent. Frankly, it is a shocking story. I read it again this week. There's the demon-possessed man at Gennesaret. There were the lepers and the unclean, and the list goes on and on and on. And in our story today, there is this woman, crippled for nearly two decades and left to deal with the incredible challenges that such a malady would bring. And Jesus sees her. Luke 5, 31 and 32 says, those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to save the righteous, but the sinner. When you make your sacred confession that Jesus is Lord, you can be certain that you are submitting to a king who is with his people and that no one who calls him Lord will be forgotten. Next, let's look at Jesus as Lord of power, verses 12 and 13. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Here again, there are two facets of Jesus' lordship on display that I want us to look at. The first is Jesus is powerful over our bodies. This is really a remarkable scene. The woman has some sort of degenerative condition brought on her by spiritual powers, but manifesting physically in her person. For 18 years, that's nearly a half a lifetime at this point, 18 years, this woman has been bent over in such a way that she's basically staring at the ground. All of her personal encounters would have been extraordinarily difficult. Making eye contact would probably have been nearly impossible. Performing any daily task would have been a tremendous challenge because the world is simply not set up to be engaged with in this way. What's more, it's likely, it's not clear, but it's likely that she would have been something of an outcast. At a bare minimum, relationships would have been extremely challenging for her. For 18 years, there was no cure. No doctors had any answers. There were no prosthetics that could help her straighten up. There was no medicine powerful enough to overcome this malady and allow her to stand up straight until this day. And upon seeing her, Jesus calls her over. Notice Luke doesn't say that she made any request of him. He didn't say that she had come to be healed. Simply says that she came, she was there. She made no request of him. He required no additional information from her. There were no diagnostic tests that needed to be run, no blood work no physical therapy. He knew her condition with precision. And he is the only force in the universe powerful enough to bring her healing. Woman, you are freed from your disability. Using only his words. A decree went out from his mouth and the created order obeyed. Jesus demonstrated his lordship demonstrates his lordship over our lives 
through the power of his words. And really, we need to think about this for a second. The incredible power on display in this act. It's unimaginable. Literally, it's unimaginable. Clearly, if Jesus can do this, he can do anything. And we're comparing this to people of power that we put our trust in. He can do anything. And yet he saw her and he loved her enough that he desired to relieve her suffering and give her new hope and new life. And it is self-evident through his cross, through his death on the cross, of the defeat of the curse of sin that weighs you and I down, causing us to live lives often of extreme difficulty with broken relationships and life-altering sicknesses, addictions and depression, divorce and death, that he loves you just as much as he loves her. And with nothing more than a sacred confession that Jesus is Lord, he offers you that same freedom. The second way that we see that Jesus is Lord of power in these verses is through his power over Satan and the spiritual forces of darkness. It would be tempting to pass this off as just a physical malady. Though, even at that, it hardly takes anything away from Jesus' power over all things that he would be able to cure with his words physical ailments with no, which nothing else can cure. But there are two key insights here that it is more than that. Luke's statement in verse 11, it's very clear. She had a disabling spirit for 18 years. And then he records Jesus' words in verse 16 when Jesus said, whom Satan bound for 18 years. This is clearly not just a physical ailment. It was a disabling spirit brought on and maintained by Satan for 18 years. One commentator wrote this fascinating description. Listen to this. From an ethnomedical perspective then, this woman's illness has a physiological expression but is rooted in a cosmological disorder. He goes on to write, Luke's depiction of this woman's illness prepares us for a redemptive encounter of startling proportions. When Jesus speaks the words, woman, you are freed from your disability, a lot of things happen very quickly. On one hand, the miraculous series of transformations of her physical body begin to unfold at incalculable speeds. Her bones begin to straighten and take proper shape. Her ligaments tendons and muscles were loosened and stretched and strengthened. Her blood vessels and arteries and nerves moved with her body into their proper positions. Her organs would have shifted and changed shape to lay properly within her frame. Scar tissue would have been healed. Her skin would have stretched and reshaped around her newly formed structure. David Dahl, I would seriously like to know the caloric output required for that much physical activity. 
And that power emanated from his words. But something equally miraculous happened. The binding of Satan was released. The curse that had been placed on her, that had folded her in half and held her there under incredible tension for two decades. Nothing, including all the power of her own musculoskeletal structure, was powerful enough to release it. Until this moment. And that incredible, body-changing, life-altering power was nothing against the mere vibrations of Jesus' voice. Jesus is not a Lord with power. He is Lord of power. He does not have power. He is power. The Son is the source of all of the power of the earth. And it was given its power by Jesus. All power emanates from him and anything with any power has it on loan from Jesus. So Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 says this. Finally, get this. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is much that I would like to say about these verses in relation to this text, but there is not time. So I want us to notice a couple of things. First of all, we are strong in his strength. Whatever strength you have, You get it from him. And he will give you whatever strength that you need. You can trust him for that. Second, without his strength, you will not be able to stand the constant onslaughts from the devil. You need to take note of that. Without his strength, you will not be able to stand You can't keep up. You cannot keep up with the schemes of the devil. And third, you are in a fight. You can think otherwise at your own peril, but you are at war. Look around. Everybody is worried about keeping the peace and being nice and having everything just so. But that is not the battlefield. There are literally cosmic powers and spiritual forces in heavenly places waging war against your soul. And every day that you try to fight it as a citizen of this world in your own strength, you are getting folded in half. But if your sacred confession is Jesus is Lord, then you have all the power you need. Be strong in his strength. He is the Lord of power. And finally, Jesus is the Lord of promise. Verses 14, verse 14 says, But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, 
There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Not on the Sabbath day. (laughs) I don't even know. (laughs) All right. So first of all, it's not quite clear who this guy is. Okay. By that, I mean, he may or may not be a Pharisee. I read a little bit about this. It seems probably that he is a, a leader of this synagogue. This guy, he's a guy, he's like a manager, you know, and the Pharisees are kind of his boss, maybe. And so he wants to impress them. He definitely doesn't want to get them upset. And his job is to keep order at the synagogue. And you got to remember, Jesus had been going from synagogue to synagogue for a bit now, and his reputation probably precedes him. He is not welcome much anymore in the synagogue. And so this guy, I'm trying to give him, legitimately trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. I feel like he's under a bit of pressure to make sure that things run smoothly. So he's probably a bit stressed out. He's probably heard about Jesus. You know, it's like, is this guy going to make me look like a fool and do something on the Sabbath that I'm then going to have to answer for? Obviously, I don't know, but I'm, I'm trying to understand because this is bananas. Like, this woman was just literally healed unquestionably, right? It's not like she's going to tell them later, yeah, I'm fixed. Like, they saw it. So I don't know how you possibly have the response that this guy has. So I'm trying, I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. He wants to be a faithful Jew It's not that he doesn't care about the woman. It's not that he's not happy that she's healed. But unfortunately, this is the problem. He cares about the religious law more than he cares about the woman. Let's look at Jesus' response in verse 15 and 16. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? to water it, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, he's making the connection there, whom Satan bound for 18 years be loosened from this bond on the Sabbath day? There's another story that's similar to this, there are several, that happened on the Sabbath day much earlier in Jesus's ministry, and you know it, where they're walking along the way and they're passing through, I guess, a wheat field or something, and they're plucking the grains of wheat off of the we right, and I guess there's probably some people with them, including some Pharisees, and they see Jesus pulling, or see the disciples pulling these grains of wheat, you know, and crushing them in their hands and snacking on them. And the Pharisees take this to be work. And it's the Sabbath. And so they ask Jesus, why do your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus responds, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's an order of priorities. It's a structure. And then he said something far more shocking. Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Amen. It was also at that moment that they decided they were going to have to kill this guy, by the way. You see, we shouldn't be surprised when the Jewish leaders in their attempts to help the Jewish people keep the law, get it mixed up 
and ultimately end up putting the law over the people. We shouldn't be surprised by that. They've gotten it so turned upside down that man has become a slave to the Sabbath rather than the Sabbath being a blessing that it was intended to be for man. We shouldn't be surprised when we get caught up in the same traps, lest we be the hypocrites that Jesus is addressing here. The world is filled these days with this kind of upside-down thinking, saddling people with expectations and a standard that absolutely nobody could possibly keep. We get things that we think are meant for good all twisted up today, just as they did then. Worldly wisdom tells us that what is right is wrong and what wrong is right, up is down and down is up. But Jesus is Lord of creation. In the same way that he is powerful over our bodies and he is powerful over the spiritual forces, he is ruler over the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath is born of creation. As we said above, the Sabbath day is the day of rest that God commanded the Israelites set aside for their benefit. It's meant for worship and for prayer. And the creation account tells us that God created the universe in six days and on the seventh, he rested. So the Sabbath exists because Jesus created it. This is what he means when he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. It's mine. I made it. And he created it to be a blessing and not a curse. And this is what I mean when I say that Jesus is Lord of the promise. He is the promise of something better. Jesus is the better way. As one who upholds the promise and a hope for a better future, and as such, a better present. So in a world where nothing makes sense and where you feel like you can't possibly keep up with the ever-changing standards, for those whose sacred confession is Jesus is Lord, he promises you a better way. So in conclusion, I mentioned that this was the last record of a trip to a synagogue for Jesus. It would only be a few months later that these leaders would finally, seemingly, have their way. They thought that they were proving once and for all that in fact Jesus was no Messiah, that he was no Lord, but rather he was a blasphemer. And they wanted to show that. They wanted to show that he was a liar who was worthy of being silenced, even at the cost of his life. I mean, after all, what kind of a powerful Lord, what kind of a Savior, what kind of a God could be captured, bound, beaten before being nailed to a cross and left to die a shameful death on a hillside between two common criminals? What kind of Lord is that? Well, Jesus could, and only Jesus, because only he knew that the standard was too high.
He knew that we were irretrievably broken by sin, that we had already fallen short of the glory of God. Only a Lord like Jesus could love his people so much that he would not count equality with God something to be grasped. Only King Jesus would love his people so much that he would take the form of a servant and become a man so that he could live the perfect life that we could not. Only Jesus could love his people enough to take the punishment that they deserved by willingly accepting death that the Pharisees believed that they imposed upon him. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. John 10, John 10, 18. Only the Lord Jesus had the power to conquer both sin and death, the death that it wrought. And only a God like Jesus has the power to send his spirit to dwell with his people, giving them his power as they await his return. And only Jesus offers, only Jesus makes a prom, the promise to eternal life with him to those who make the sacred confession that Jesus is Lord. So if we think back to these three ladies when they stand before the congregation and claim that Jesus is Lord of their life, or when you stand before your family or your friends or before the Lord himself or your workmates and claim that Jesus is Lord, you can have the certainty that the Lord that you proclaim loves you and has the power to accomplish his will and to fulfill the promises that he has made. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a precious and intimate look at our Lord this morning. Father, we thank you for the baptisms that we celebrate, celebrated two weeks ago that remind us of this sacred confession. And Father, it is my prayer that you would take these words and that you would cause each of us as we leave this place today to reflect on their meaning and their power, and that they would become much more than words, and that we would hold them dear, claim them as true, and share them with all who need to know. In Jesus' name, amen.